This program is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. Download their free mobile app and use the promo code BEST during activation for a chance to win $100. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, Counterspin, The Colbert Report, Jim Hightower, The Young Turks, Grit Radio, The Progressive, and Senator Bernie Sanders with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Onion News Network. In speaking about the uh, proposed Republican budget, the head of the U.S. Agency for International Development told lawmakers on Wednesday that the GOP version of the budget bill would result in the deaths of at least 70,000 children worldwide who depend on American food and health assistance. He said, uh, we estimate, and I believe these are very conservative estimates, that H.R. 1 would lead to 70,000 kids dying. USAID Administrator Raviv, uh, Rajiv Shah testified before the House Appropriations State and Foreign Ops Subcommittee. Uh, of that 70,000, 30,000 would come from malaria control programs that would have to be scaled back specifically. The other 40,000 is broken out as 24,000 would die because of lack of support for immunizations and other investments. 16,000 would be because of lacks, uh, lacked skilled attendance at birth. Um, the IDA account supports 1.6 million people in Darfur, so having the account would place 800,000 people at risk. Uh, and Republicans' response was, come on, those kids probably aren't even white. So, no, I don't know that they said that. This is the first day of my life. I swear I was born right in the doorway. I went out in the rain, suddenly everything changed They're spreading blankets on the beach Yours is the first face that I saw I think I was blind before I met you And I don't know where I am, I don't know where I've been But I know where I want to go it's no secret that many in the corporate media, pundits and reporters alike, think the deficit should be an urgent concern in Washington. And when they talk about the deficit, they often mean cutting Social Security benefits. Now, the public doesn't like this idea, and neither do some politicians. So what is a Social Security cutting reporter to do? Well, you can make up a story that says politicians are starting to see things your way. That's what the Washington Post's Lori Montgomery did on March 25th, under the headline, Democrats splinter over strategy for reducing deficit. Montgomery claimed that, quote, Democrats are sharply divided over whether to tackle popular but increasingly expensive safety net programs for the elderly, particularly Social Security, close quote. Now, that would be a pretty important development. So who are these sharply divided, splintering Democrats? Montgomery names a few Democratic lawmakers, but they're pledging to leave Social Security alone. She alludes to House Democrats who say the same thing. Then she cites a right-leaning Democratic think tank called Third Way, who argue that some Social Security cuts are necessary. This is not surprising, given the group's politics, and also not evidence that would support the point of her story. In fact, there's nothing here to support the premise of the article. But it had legs nonetheless. Post-columnist Ezra Klein wrote a follow-up, arguing that Democrats shouldn't be sharply divided on cutting Social Security. It would have been better to point out that this divide doesn't appear to exist. Florida. 
advisors for the Obama administration. I assume he's here to beg me for a loan. Please welcome Austin Goolsby. Hey, Austin, thanks for coming back. Good to Great see you. All right, sir, I'm going I'm to say something right now that I don't normally say to my guests. <laughs> I don't like how this is already beginning. Okay, yes? I'm going to let you get a word in edgewise. Because I'd love to hear you explain how on Monday we hit the magical <laughs> deadly debt ceiling date. Yes. And yet we're all still here. <laughs> the earth didn't swallow the United States like you predicted, okay? No, Isn't no, your boogeyman dead? No. Isn't your boogeyman Look, dead? If they cut off the water to your house. Yes. The fact that there are a few gallons in the toilet that you can drink is not going to save you. You got to get the water started back again. And the fact that we First hit of the all, remind me never to have a drink at your house. Yes. <laughs> look, the fact that we hit the debt ceiling, yeah, but we, we hit have it, baby. emergency measures that we can rely on until those measures run out. So we're stretching it right now. We're stretching it. And so we're li America's living on hamburger helpers, August what you're saying. And, and look, at best, it's whatever's in the pantry. And so the Secretary of the Treasury said, we're going to get to the technical debt ceiling. There are other things we can do to around the beginning of August. Okay. And then that's, All right. that's okay, a problem. But let, let's, okay, let me, let me just, I'll bite on your <laughs> hypothetical crisis. Okay. Okay. What? So. Or to put it in a simpler way, so what? <laughs> okay. What happens? I hear a lot of doom crying. Okay, treat me, Austin, treat me like I'm an idiot. What? <laughs> what's the worst that happens that. if we hit the debt ceiling? Look, if you hit the debt ceiling and the U.S. government defaulted, you'd, it would either default on treasuries, the interest rate would explode, banks would collapse, people would be screaming in the streets. Or they default on Social Security. Senior citizens around the country are not receiving their checks. We default on the military. We don't pay the military bills. Or we default on Medicare. All of these are bad. We don't want to get anywhere near this. This is not where we want to be. Okay, so what's, what's, so the, let's what's the focus worst on case the budget. scenario? What? <laughs> <laughs> So what's, what's your answer? Print more money? My That's always the Democrats' is, answer, right? No, tax look, and spend. This isn't about... Tax and spend. This isn't the budget. Cut the budget. Let's cut the budget. Cut the spending. I agree. Cut the spending. Let's cut the spending. No new taxes. No, no, wait a minute. Read... No, 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 no Read your lips. Read my lips. No new taxes. The high income tax rates 
are the lowest they've been in some 60 years. Thank God. And we cannot afford, in an environment where we've got big deficits and long-run fiscal challenges, the president has said he doesn't think we can afford to keep rates at these historically low levels. And I think he's totally right. We've got to cut spending. Both sides agree, and the total amount that we're talking about cutting mm -hmm. of around $4 trillion over 10 years is basically the same on the two sides. It's just totally different how we get there. What if, what if, yeah. why don't we take a page from average Americans and just walk away from our decks? <laughs> you know what I mean? And just live under assumed name. Like... We just we just duct tape Florida up against the Gulf Coast, <laughs> and we try to pass ourselves off as Brazil, if you know what I mean. <laughs> what I'm I'm afraid. And then, that now, then we go. What are you talking about? He moved out a long time I'm ago. I'm thinking about it, but as I think about it, that definitely won't work. Won't work. No, no look, we got we sh we should address the budget. Okay. The debt ceiling is not the issue. The issue is the budget. The issue is, the you budget. guys are two years in. How come you haven't yes. fixed the economy? <laughs> You've had two years. You're two years. You're I'm killing you. I'm killing you. 9% unemployment. I Where are the jobs? How come you haven't fixed it yet? Five words or less. <laughs> Do numbers count as words? No. I'll, okay. Uh, okay. 2.1 million jobs added last 14 months. Okay? Last That's 14 months. In the last 14 months. Last yes. 14 months. Added. 14 didn't count. Okay. 2 point, how many? Jobs. 2.1 million. Okay. okay. We started So you went from like 9.7 to, what, where'd right. you start? Way down here, 1929. If you started level. down there, why don't you just keep digging all the way to China and get more money? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Look, we address the budget. That's what we must do. Let's cut spending. Let's not, let's return to tax revenues from high income people that are more like the historic norms. Mm -hmm. If guys we like, do a balanced plan. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse plan, me, excuse me. He's talking about guys like me. <laughs> I don't think they, I don't think they realize you're talking about raising my taxes. But what I'm saying is just let your rates go back to what they were under Bill Clinton. You take some cuts on a balanced plan, some discretionary, some entitlements, defense, revenues, you save interest costs. How, how long have you been working on these budgetary problems? A long time. <laughs> how many years? In the administration, we came in in January of 2009. Okay. Previous to that. Yeah. Studying it as an academic for 14 years. So like 16 years now. Something like that. Okay. We've been talking about it for six minutes and I can barely feel my toes. <laughs> Austin, so Austin, thank you so much for joining me.
I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Here's the hot new phrase in Washington, shared sacrifice. Sounds nice, but it's really just code for gouging the middle class and the poor. Republican budget whackers use the phrase like a war cry as they slash Medicare, education, and every other public program they hate. President Obama, too, has taken to uttering the phrase as he surrenders to the contrived wisdom in Washington that every American must give up even essential governmental benefits in order to balance the budget. But guess who's not sharing? The corporate powers, which use their lobbyists, lawyers, campaign cash, tax havens, and other tools to avoid giving up anything in the call for national sacrifice. For example, while hundreds of thousands of school teachers are being dumped and our school children shortchanged in sacrifice to the deficit gods, it was recently revealed that General Electric is a sacrifice-free corporation. With almost a thousand tax lawyers and other specialists in its tax department, this infamous polluter and job cutter has paid exactly zero in income taxes since 2006, despite raking in $26 billion in profits. Indeed, its army of sacrifice avoiders produced a $4 billion tax refund for GE in those five years. Meanwhile, it continues to be rewarded with billions of dollars a year in government contracts. In a concise report titled The Artful Dodgers, a watchdog group named Public Campaign uncovers the flagrant tax avoidance scams of a dozen hugely profitable corporations, including oil giants and bailed-out banks, as well as such outfits as FedEx and Carnival Cruise Lines. This is Jim Hightower saying, when your local, state, and national politicos mouth platitudes about sacrificing for the national good, tell them to start at the top. To download the Artful Dodgers report, go to publiccampaign.org. It all keeps adding up. I think I'm cracking up. Am I just paranoid? Am I just stuck? I went to a shrink to analyze my dreams. She says it's like a sex that's bringing me. And finally, New York Times business reporter Andrew Ross Sorkin wrote an article on May 15th that tried to advance the argument that $250,000 actually isn't that much money to make in a year. The complaint is that politicians who advocate raising tax rates on income above $250,000 a year have chosen an arbitrary dividing line. Above it, you're rich and you'll be taxed accordingly. 
Articles like this are annoying. We're being asked to listen to wealthy people complain that they're not that wealthy once you factor in the private school tuition and the mortgage on the big house. But they're often also misleading, especially when it comes to how much wealthy people pay in taxes. Ross Sorkin mentions a Manhattan father of two with a household income of $262,000 per year who sees his tax bill potentially going up and says, quote, I don't understand why people like us are lumped in with millionaires and billionaires, close quote. As economist Dean Baker pointed out, if you understand marginal tax rates, you should know that someone making slightly more than $250,000 per year would pay a higher rate only on the income above that amount, which in the case of the Manhattan father would mean a few hundred dollars at most in extra taxes. The article goes on to discuss tax policy and budget deficits with Ross Sorkin making this point. Quote, much of the income of the country's wealthiest people comes from investments which is taxed at the long-term capital gains rate of just 15%. So far, neither Democrats nor Republicans dare talk about raising the long-term capital gains tax out of fear that it would reduce crucial investments that could produce jobs, close quote. No one talks about raising capital gains tax rates? The Congressional Progressive Caucus's blueprint, the People's Budget, offers an array of options for raising revenues, including eliminating preferentially low rates on long-term capital gains. So someone is talking about it after all. Part of Ross Sorkin's point is that more tax brackets would help clarify the difference between earning a mere $250,000 or, say, many millions of dollars. A fine idea and also part of the people's budget. If reporters gave it more attention, they might discover that some of the answers they pretend to seek are staring them in the face. Freedom Works. They are on the counterattack to support the Ryan Medicare plan. They are ha holding meetings with uh, congressional staffers. They are holding meetings uh, uh, later in, in June uh, with people who are going to go do grassroots work across the country who are going to start yelling at those August town halls. They are doing a counterattack. It's coming. Okay. Now let me give you a preview of what's to come. Uh, first of all, they are going to do double down and say, uh, are you kidding me? We're the ones saving Medicare. <laughs> I love these guys. They've been trying to kill Medicare for nearly 50 years now. The ads go back to Ronald Reagan in 1961, when he was back when he was a private citizen. Okay, they go through Gingrich. They've been trying to kill the program even before it got started. Okay, and so now Freedom Works goes around there, and their Tea Party group. Guess who they're funded by? Twelve million dollars by the Koch brothers, of course. And they're saying, Oh no, no. We want to save Medicare. Oh, the Democrats don't have a plan. They're not going to save Medicare. Okay, so it's bankrupt, bankrupt, broke, 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 bankrupt, bankrupt, broke, broke. So uh, what we you have to sign on to our plan that gives you a tiny little voucher uh, that doesn't cover 68 percent of your cost. You're going to have to cover 68 percent of your cost, but who cares? Uh, it's broke, it's broke. You'd have zero if you go with a Democratic plan. 
What a lie. And they know it's a lie. Here's one of the tricks that they're going to do. And you'll see this coming up through the rest of the summer, okay? Because they've been taught by the Koch brothers to do this. And now you watch. They will do this, okay? Because the Republicans are robots. They follow orders from whoever gives them money, okay? You will see Republican congressmen holding up a blank piece of paper saying, oh, this is the Democratic plan. Uh, because the Democrats don't have a plan to save Medicare, okay? We already got their notes. They always follow their notes. You will see Republicans doing that time after time, pretending that they're on the side of Medicare, when in fact their program would kill Medicare as we know it. You would get no guaranteed benefits. And the reason they keep mentioning the uh, over and under 55, and which is another point that they are going to reemphasize over and over again, is because they're selling, telling people uh, above 55, we know this program sucks and it would destroy your Medicare, but don't worry, it doesn't apply to you. No, we're only going to destroy Medicare for people under 55. Now, wait a minute. If this program is better for Medicare, if it's so great and it saves Medicare, wouldn't you want it to apply to people above the age of 55? Why are you so insistent on pointing out, as Michelle Bachman just did, oh, no, 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 it doesn't apply to people over 55. That's because you know it kills Medicare. <laughs> and you don't want senior citizens voting based on that. So, here comes the counterattack. The Republicans are going to double down and give them credit, man. If the Democrats saw numbers like this, 70% disapproval and higher, oh, they'd have run so quick and so far. They'd be panting right now. They'd be miles, states away. They'd have run three marathons running away from the issue. There's never been a time as fucked up as this. I didn't fuck it up You probably didn't fuck it up But they, whoever they are, they fucked it up Now it's fucked up I can't unfuck it up You probably can't unfuck it up And if we're counting on them to unfuck it up Then we're all fucked Talk about Chuck Parody, Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius calling out the Republicans' plan to deal with Medicare and taking scare tactics to a new level. I want you to listen to what she said. Actually, read what she said. If you run out of the government voucher and then you run out of your own money, you are left to scrape together charity care, go without care, and die soon. The Democrats continue to use these scare tactics, and, and I, it's at a point where I, I find it very, I'm very resentful of it. Well, if you're going to say we're not going to cut entitlements, that's like saying we're going to go bankrupt as a nation. Ah, talk about scare tactics. Well, we know that the Republican leadership has apparently already punted on the Ryan plan's attempt to dismantle Medicare, but some Democrats are going in the opposite direction, with legislation introduced today in both the Senate and the House to extend 
Medicare to All, the American Health Security for All Act. Joining us to explain what's in it and why he's not scared, the Senate bill's sponsor, independent from Vermont and regular Grit TV commentator, Bernie Sanders. Senator Sanders, welcome back. These scare tactics are not working on you. Don't you hear what's being said? If we don't scale back, we are going to die, I think, and, well, bankrupt the nation. Well, let me tell you what is happening. This is not a scare tactic. This is a fact. This year, according to a study at Harvard University, we're going to lose about 45,000 Americans. They're going to die because they don't get to a doctor when they should. Millions of people are going to be suffering unnecessarily because they don't have health insurance and they don't have access to primary health care. My view, and my view has been this for many, many years, is that the United States of America has got to join the rest of the industrialized world and guarantee health care to every man, woman, and child as a right, as a right and not a privilege. And Laura, here is what is interesting. At a time when we have 50 million Americans who have no health insurance, many more who are underinsured, we end up spending almost twice as much per capita on health care as do any other nation. And on top of all that, our health care outcomes in terms of life expectancy, in terms of infant mortality and other indices are lower than many other mm -hmm. countries. We've got a dysfunctional system, and it's dysfunctional because the goal of private insurance companies is not to provide health care to all people in a cost-effective way. It's to make as much money as they possibly can. So we end up spending about 30 cents of every dollar on administration, bureaucracy, and profiteering rather than on delivering health care. And how much do they make? Oh, insurance companies do very, very well. Drug companies end up charging us the highest rates of uh, any country on earth. They sell the same product in the United States, in some cases, for twice as much as they will in Europe or in Canada. Private insurance companies distort health care because keeping people healthy, disease prevention, primary health care access is not a way you make a whole lot of money. Mm. So we have a, a system today that is in many ways dysfunctional, extremely wasteful, extremely expensive, and a Medicare for all system administered at the statewide level could provide health care to all people in a much more cost-effective way. So talk to us about how this would work. The American Health Care Security for All Act, as you just said, it's a federal program administered at the state level. Explain that for me. Well, what you have is you have federal standards, uh, but you're giving flexibility to states with the understanding that a small rural state like Vermont is different than a state like New York State or California. So you're going to give people flexibility. But the program, importantly, is administered at the state. And why that is so important, I think, is that people have more access to their state legislature about what should be covered, what should not be covered. And they can get into that process much more effectively at the state level than they can at the national level. So how does it work for people? It works for people is that we're all in it together. That every, instead of having 10 different insurance cards in a given state, you have one. In the state of Vermont, it will be the Green Mountain card. You can go to the doctor that you want. You go to the hospital that you want. And there will be one single payer paying the costs. When we do that, we're going to save substantial sums of money 
in doing away with a lot of bureaucracy and administration, a lot of waste in billing. We spend billions of dollars a year as a nation arguing about whether we're covered or we're not covered. When you are covered and your health care dollar goes into health care, you save a whole lot of money. And how about costs? I mean, we may save, but in terms of the costs themselves, do they actually come down? And how? They sure do. Well, you know, it, it, different studies may show different conclusions. But the bottom line is certainly in terms of per capita expenditure, costs go way, way down because you do away with a whole lot of bureaucracy mm. inherent in a multi-private insurance company system. So the savings are enormous. They will be enormous in Vermont. We have seen in Taiwan, for example, which moved from an American-type system to a single-payer system, their administrative cost went way, way down. In that country, you walk into a doctor's office, you give him or her your card, your payment is instantaneous, you don't have to go through a whole lot of billing process. It saves significant sums of money. But are you still dealing with for-profit companies? I mean, is the state or the federal government still dealing with those companies that right now are making the... Not for, 40... basic, not for basic health care, no. The United States is the only country today that allows for-profit insurance companies to actively participate in their health care system. And that is the reason why our costs are so much higher per capita than any other. So two things. One, why is this different from Vermont? Here's Vermont's senator talking about, I mean, Vermont's governor talking about what's happening there. How do you intend to survive under the existing system? Costs are going up at twice the rate of inflation. Uh, we've watched in this little state in the last 10 years, we were, we're spending $2.5 billion more on health care, our little teeny state, than we were 10 years ago. Costs are going up a million dollars a day. You know, we've got to reform it. We're, if Vermont gets this right, we will be the state that has quality health care, that grows jobs, and that has great economic opportunities. Vermont says they're doing it anyway. You know Vermont. <laughs> I sure do know Vermont. No, and my certainly, my hope is that Vermont, in fact, will lead the nation in that direction. But I want to see the whole country have that opportunity uh, to follow Vermont. Republicans who insisted last year that the richest Americans should keep getting those Bush tax cuts worth tens of billions of dollars a year are now literally trying to take food out of the mouths of poor children, even though the food would cost a mere fraction of those tax breaks. The budget deficit doesn't bother Republicans when they're giving those tax breaks to the wealthiest people, but it troubles them no end when it comes to feeding poor people. On Monday, Republicans proposed slashing $800 million out of the WIC program, which provides nutritious foods to about 9 million low-income new moms and their infants. WIC, by the way, stands for the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children. If this cut goes through, hundreds of thousands of these moms and infants will no longer be able to get the food they need. 
The WIC program is one of the most successful in the country. It has a high degree of effectiveness in improving birth outcomes, reducing child anemia, and improving participants' nutrition and health, according to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. But we know what the Republican priorities are. They are to help the rich at every turn and neglect the poor. Cutting funds for the WIC program? You can't get more callous than that. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. New York Times business reporter Andrew Ross Sorkin is becoming something of a star. His book, Too Big to Fail, was turned into an HBO movie last week. But Sorkin's critics have long said that he's too cozy with the Wall Street powers that he covers. Some of those critics are actually other Times reporters. A New York Magazine article explained that several sources of the paper have likened Sorkin to disgraced WMD reporter Judith Miller. But Sorkin's a star, and it's not hard to see why. He was on NBC's Meet the Press on May 22nd as part of a roundtable discussion that followed an appearance by Republican Paul Ryan. Here's how Sorkin discussed Ryan's budget plan. I got an email while the show was going on, while Ryan was just speaking, and even though the Medicare plan may be unpopular, the view by a Wall Street CEO was, this guy at least is proposing something. I think they like the idea of leadership. They want to get behind that. So Wall Street CEOs like a plan that gives them tax cuts and makes seniors pay more for health care. That's a shocker. It makes you wonder what other surprises are lurking in his email. Perhaps someone from the Congressional Progressive Caucus should email Sorkin about their people's budget plan. In a May 15th piece about the budget debate, Sorkin wrote that no one is talking about raising capital gains taxes. Actually, the people's budget does just that. But Sorkin's Wall Street CEO sources probably aren't sending him emails praising that kind of leadership. There's never been a better time to check out Stitcher for your mobile device. When you activate their free app using the promo code BEST, you'll get instant access to thousands of podcasts streamed directly to you without syncing. You'll be entered automatically to win $100, and you'll help support Best of the Left at no cost to you. No reason not to check it out, so head to your preferred app market and download the free Stitcher app, just named the best app ever for your iPhone, Android, BlackBerry, or Pre, and be sure to use the promo code BEST during activation. Congressman Jim McDermott and I are very pleased that you're here today. Um, and we're very pleased to be joined with uh, Arlene Baker Holt of the AFL CIO, uh, Gene Ross of the National Nurses United and Matt Biggs of the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers and many other labor representatives uh, 
to talk about the need for real health care reform uh, in this country. Uh, and what Congressman McDermott and I and organized labor are saying is enough is enough. Now is the time for the United States of America to join the rest of the industrialized world and say that health care is a right of all people, not a privilege for the few. We are here today to advocate for and bring forth legislation which provides for a Medicare for all single payer program which will guarantee health care for every man, woman, and child in this country. The major issue that we as a nation in terms of health care have got to resolve, is health care a right or is it not? And we say, along with the vast majority of the American people, that it is a right. The second issue that we have to resolve is, if we are going to guarantee health care to all of our people, how do we do it in a cost-effective way? And the only way you do that is through a Medicare for all single-payer program. We are sick and tired of seeing up to 30 cents of every health care dollar going to administration, going to billing, going to advertising, going to profiteering. Health care dollars should go to health care, not to make CEOs extremely wealthy. When a doctor works with a patient, examines a patient, that doctor should give that patient the best possible treatment, not worry about whether the patient can afford the cost of care or the very high cost of prescription drugs. So what today is about is saying that health care is a right, and we're going to go forward in that direction. I would point out that as someone who supported the health care reform bill of last year, that after health care reform is passed, after it is implemented, we are still going to be looking at 23 million Americans without any health insurance at all. After health care reform is passed, we are going to continue to see the cost of health care soaring for businesses and for working people as well. So we think, I think that health care reform is a step forward. We have got to go a lot further. I am very proud that in the state of Vermont, our small state may well be leading the nation in a new direction. Our Senate and our House are going to go forward and pass a Medicare for All single-payer program. Our governor is prepared to sign that legislation, making Vermont the first state in the country to go forward with single-payer. My hope is that we can get the waivers now lowered to 2014, which will allow the state of Vermont to use the federal resources that it will be receiving for a single-payer program. So we are making some progress, and now we are working with organized labor uh, to make the day come sooner when everybody in this country has health care as a right. Uh, it is now my uh, pleasure to introduce a gentleman who has probably worked harder than anybody in the United States uh, Congress for decades on the concept of a Medicare for All single-payer program, Congressman Jim McDermott of Washington. Jim. Thank you very much, Bernie. I, uh, it is uh, it's really exciting to watch what's happening in Vermont. I started back in the state of Washington in 1984 with the Washington Basic Health Plan trying to do what Vermont is doing in 2011. So there have been a lot of steps along the way trying to make this all happen. I'm a supporter of the 
Affordable Care Act. It's a start. But it has in it the provision for waivers to states to run their own system, which is basically what the bill that I've been introducing and Bernie's been introducing for the last 20 years has been a single-payer system state by state. Some state is going to step out and make it happen. And it looks like Vermont is poised right on the verge of doing it. Now, as Bernie says, the problem with the Affordable Care Act, if there is one, is there's still a lot of people who aren't covered. And in order to make a system really be able to control the costs, you have to have everybody in the system. You can't have a large segment of the population who are coming into emergency rooms in extremis rather than having preventive care. You have to do preventive care and give people basic primary care before so that they don't wind up being so costly in the emergency room. What's also exciting about today is having the California nurses. They've tried it in California. They came within inches of doing this in California a few years ago. So this isn't just Vermont that's thinking about this. This is people all across this country. And to have organized labor and the nurses who have been looking at this situation backing us is really uh, very heartwarming to see that it's coming together to back what's going on in the upper right hand or left, let's see, I guess it's the upper left hand corner of the United States. And you are, no, it's, you are looking at a little tiny state, but it's going to happen all over the place because it is an idea whose time is right. In the 26th district in New York, Kathy Hochul, the Democrat, has defeated Jane Corwin. And uh, the result was 48 to 42, and Jack Davis, the Tea Party candidate, got 9%. Now, uh, when this contest started uh, a little while back, uh, Corwin actually had a significant lead. Uh, we've told you before, the Republicans had a 30,000 person advantage in registration in that district. They've only lost that seat three times to the Democrats since the Civil War. And we had this dramatic change where then Hochul winds up winning by 6% when she was significantly down earlier. Why was that? And that was because of Medicare. By the way, uh, Jack Davis, the Tea Party guy, was in the race the entire time. In fact, he was getting much higher percentages earlier. So uh, it can't be just that there was a Tea Party guy in the race. Otherwise... Uh, Corwin uh, would have been losing from the beginning, but she wasn't. She was winning in the beginning. And, uh, and what, what, what it was was Medicare, no question about it. Uh, Hochul uh, hit her, and he, she hit her hard on the fact that Corwin says she would have supported the Paul Ryan plan. Uh, but at the very end of the week, she was in a panic, because she's like, I'm, 
you know what? I think Hochul actually wants to cut Medicare. And in fact, did I say I support the Ryan plan? No, not so much. I love Medicare. I want to protect it, and I don't want to cut it in any way. So we had massive flip-flopping. We had panic, and in the end, what we suspected was going to happen happened. The Democrat won. Now, yesterday, as I told you about this, I made a prediction about uh what the republicans would say about it as an excuse for why they lost the race so that it didn't have anything to do with medicare let's show you that prediction clip seven one of the videos today was about how if you go against this you're not a republican how do you backpedal from that jr you're right and here a uh, fun uh, young turks prediction the way they excuse this and rationalize this mm-hmm. uh the rush limbaugh's and the sean hannity's of the world is that they will say Oh, no, this had nothing to do with Medicare. It's a Tea Party guy split the vote. But he wasn't really a Tea Party guy. He was actually a Democratic guy disguising himself as a Republican guy. And it was Democratic dirty tricks that cost him this election. Now, you watch. You watch. Well, you're going to watch right now. That was yesterday. These are clips from today. Here's Paul Ryan making that exact excuse. Clip eight. Uh, what's what's your response to the events and the attacks? Two things I would say. First of all, when a Democrat runs as a third party Tea Party candidate, spends a couple million dollars, it's going to have an effect. Are you saying that the loss of this seat is because of the demagoguing of this issue and not exactly what you're proposing? Actually, I would think, well, yes, but mostly I think when you have a Democrat run as a Tea Party and spend over two million dollars making it a three-way race, that's going to hurt the Republican a lot. Now, what was the two parts I told you yesterday? They would say, oh, it was a Tea Party guy, and number two, that he's, in fact, a secret Democrat. Now, I had not heard that before the election, but I knew that was coming. And Paul Ryan's not alone. Let's go to clip number nine. This is John Fury. He is a GOP strategist. The Republicans have to call out people who masquerade as Tea Party guys and then spend a couple of million dollars in the primary and then are able to take 12% of the vote. I mean, you know, if, if Davis is not in the race, the Republicans win fairly handily. Right, right. No, it wasn't Medicare. It wasn't Medicare at all. It was that guy, and he's not even Tea Party. He's a Democrat. I heard he once voted for a Democrat. And he once campaigned as a Democrat. No, it was him. It was him. It wasn't us. Medicare, our efforts to cut it is awesome. They're not alone. Here comes Pete Sessions. Man, they're amazing with their talking points. They must get him at, I don't know, 5, 6 in the morning, and then they all rush out on TV and talk to the press and say the same exact thing. And as you, I showed you from yesterday, you can tell what's coming. Here's Pete Sessions. He's a Republican from Texas, congressman. Republican Jane Corwin ran a hard-fought campaign against two well-funded Democrats, including one masquerading under the Tea Party name. I think I've earned this one. Go ahead. You tell me what I told you. (laughs) Okay. They've always got an excuse for everything. But you know what? It doesn't matter. I hope that they use that excuse. No, no, yeah, don't learn anything from this. Yeah, try to run on the idea of cutting Medicare all across the country. See how that turns out for you. Yeah, no, it was a Tea Party guy, but he was actually a Democrat. You're totally right. Have at it, Hoss. The whole 2012 campaign you should run on, we cut Medicare, we're Republicans. Let's see how that turns out for you. By the way, there is one group that is not in favor of that strategy and that is in a panic. That's Karl Rove's American Crossroads. They said today, yeah, it doesn't appear 2012 is going to be like 2010. The Democrats are going to be a lot more competitive, and there's a lot to learn from this race in the 26th district. Well, we might not like Karl Rove, 
but he does know what he's talking about in politics often, and he does in this case. Let's hope the rest of the Republican Party does not listen to him. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. First off, let me start by saying this, that the uh, Harry Reid finally brought the Paul Ryan budget, Medicare-destroying budget, to a vote in the Senate. They knew this was going to lose, but they basically want to put everybody on record. People call it theater. I got news for you. That's what politics is. And there's nothing theatrical about this whatsoever. If I'm a voter and I go into the booth, it's a very specific, it, this is, could be one of the biggest questions I have. Do you want to destroy Medicare or not? And so I'm glad this isn't about theater. This is about democracy as far as I'm concerned. They knew it was going to lose. So what? So what? Can you got either one of you guys tell me right now which Republican um, voted against this plan? Without looking at it? Wait, I, I think I, I know. Did some. you look? I did not look just now. I did. Previously. Right, but my point is, I wouldn't have guessed. I knew Scott Brown wasn't going to vote for it. Olympia Snow, Susan Collins voted against it. Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. And Rand Paul of Kentucky because it didn't go far enough in destroying everything. And... And then Scott Brown, of course, uh, you know, cries about it. It's not right to make me go on the record. And then, and let me make something clear here. All right. I mentioned to you the other day that, and I think I did uh, mention on the member show, that after I did Radigan the other day, hosted by Matt Miller, he... He stopped me, and he said, hey, uh, I heard you took issue with a piece I wrote on Social Security, which was from February. So apparently he, f he heard about it, which I actually I quite enjoyed. And he's like, I'd like to talk to you about it. I said, you come on my show, that'd be great. So he said, yeah, g give me your email. So I gave my email through the producer. <laughs> he put me on a mailing list. <laughs> so I got his latest article. And now I don't know which one to have him on for. i got to read this thing again carefully, but he's saying, wait, Paul Ryan has a point. And I'm not sure exactly, frankly, what he thinks that point is. 
by the piece. But he ends it by saying, far-sighted Democrats shouldn't trash the idea of seeking serious savings from Medicare. There's nobody, there's nobody who's not talking about seeking uh, um, savings from Medicare. I have two articles that were printed today about how you can seek savings from Medicare. I got one word for you, two words for you, death panels. Death panels. Death panels. There was a measure in the Affordable Care Act, and then there was an attempt to do it through regulation, to create a cost-effectiveness board. And it was completely demagogued and destroyed by the Republicans. There are plenty of proposals in which you can save money in Medicare. But that savings in Medicare, understand, Medicare runs exactly as efficiently as possible. The savings don't come from Medicare. The savings don't come from the implementation of a government-sponsored health insurance program, which is what Medicare is. The savings come from dealing with the delivery of medicine. And how do you impact the delivery of medicine? Well, if you have an advisory board that looks at the cost-effectiveness of each um, medical measure that is taken, and they can say, we will reimburse at this rate because we have done studies and shown that this is ineffective, that the only reason why the doctor is giving you a full-body MRI uh, in this instance is because he owns the MRI machine. This has been shown by that Atul Gawande piece in uh, the New Yorker when he compared two towns in, uh, in Texas. Everything was controlled. Same type of population. Same uh, health outcomes. One paid 30 more percent in health care costs via Medicare than the other. And the reason is because there were more doctors in that town who owned MRI machines or other machines that uh, they get fee-based medical care they give. And so that's not Paul Ryan's point. And Matt Miller outlines it. Paul Ryan's plan to reduce Medicare costs is to make not a board of 12 or 20 experts at determining cost effectiveness, putting, uh, getting um, studies, looking at the um, uh, statistics and finding out which, which medical procedure is effective and which is not, which is a waste of time, which is not, which is a uh, doctor um, basically, you know, I've got a hammer so everything's a nail. No, Paul Ryan's plan is give seniors one-third the amount that they need to pay for their health care. Let them choose. Because we know that everyone who hits the age of 65 knows exactly what's best for them from a doctor's care. Right? It's absurd. The issue isn't whether or not we need to lessen the cost of health care. There's no liberal who disagrees with that premise. The issue is how we go about it. 
I can't even buy a freaking uh, uh, TV and know which one I'm going to buy. You're telling me that it's going to be my responsibility to make an informed decision about what to do if, uh, you know, I've got crap and I've got blood in my stool? Excuse me? I got a cramp in my stomach. I don't know what it is. This is absurd. I think, you know, and I'll have Matt on to talk about his Social Security thing. I, I don't know if this is just like he writes this stuff because he's contrarian or, you know, maybe it sells. Maybe it's more of a business decision on his part. I don't know. But this is absurd. Paul Ryan's point is not that, hey, I found a clever way of reducing the cost of Medicare. Paul Ryan's point is there shouldn't be Medicare. Because if there was any intellectual honesty about how to cut costs for Medicare, it would be the same argument as to how to cut costs in the, uh, for private insurance, which is we need to restructure the way health care is delivered. And we don't have the apparatus to do that in the private sector. We do have the apparatus to do it in Medicare. And that is to have a cost-effectiveness board that really looks at this stuff. But then you're going to hear uh, the entire Republican Party take their talking points from Sarah Palin on Facebook. Right here, you know, uh, Ezra Klein. Outlines the three different options on how you can lower costs. One option, which every other developed nation employs, is to simply use the blunt force of government purchasing power to set low prices. In other words, if you have a single payer, or if you're providing prescription, you know, uh, Medicare D prescription coverage, and you have the ability to buy a bucket load of this stuff, price drops. We don't do that in this country. That's contrary to the market, although it isn't contrary to the market if I was in the private industry. If I was buying uh, 5,000 uh, reams of paper, it would be much cheaper than what I buy now. The Ryan plan is another option, which is to basically just say, like, we're going to price people out of care. Just not going to give them enough money to buy a lot of health insurance, uh, health care, and so maybe the price will come down. They'll die or live in pain. But then he goes on to say, basically, uh, the the real, the best, uh, the, the the best option is. Finding savings in the health care system itself. The best estimates suggest that one-fifth and one-third to one-third of all our care is wasted. But figuring out which treatments are helpful and which are hurting is easier than done. Another piece in, uh, I think it's in the Times, by a doctor, Rita Fre uh, Fredberg, goes through some of those things that are wasteful things. Apparently, there's no point in treating prostate cancer at age 75, because if you haven't gotten it before then, uh, prostate cancer takes a long time to kill you, and anything you would do to stop it would be more problematic for you at age 75. And if you haven't, uh, if it's not uh, rapidly moving at that point, 
apparently everybody dies. If you're uh, 75 or older, everybody dies with prostate cancer. Just most people don't die from it. And so, yes, she concludes, uh, we need a, uh, a task force recommendation Uh, a task force that uh, suggests which things should be reimbursed and which not. But we can't have that task force have the ability to actually implement these things because it's too politically, because we get death panels. That's why. We get morons in the, the Republican Party who say death panels. So if Matt Miller is going to write his piece, it should not be, hey, wait a minute, Paul Ryan has a point. It should be, hey, wait a minute, if Paul Ryan really believes in what he's saying, then he should turn around and start chastising his party for acting like a bunch of four-year-olds. Jay, my name is Raven, and I'm calling from Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I just wanted to say I work in a correctional facility, and I just finished listening to your podcast about the um, police state in the United States. The one thing I don't think that was really touched on all that much in, in the podcast, I think, is the inherent racism in the correctional facilities, um, in the correctional settings, um, you know, Minorities, especially in Kentucky, you know, we're running about a 13, 14% African American population, I believe. And yet, being in the facility that I'm in, that is um, about 70% of our um, people who are incarcerated. And also, what's not being brought up is who's being incarcerated for what crimes. You know, um, people get incarcerated a lot of times for petty drug stuff and these people need treatment um, they don't necessarily need incarceration and especially some of these long prison sentences that are getting handed out um, so I was just um, wanting to say I think that's something that's kind of overlooked with the problems of um, the police state in this country also um, I think in prisons in general I think conditions depending on the facility are getting better um, just because of the people who are working there and a lot of places have started standing up and saying hey this is not a humane way to treat a person and I do want to commend um, Philadelphia for coming down hard on what they did um, in that one facility in Pennsylvania because you know um, people not everybody who goes to jail or goes to prison is a bad person or does a bad thing. They just make stupid mistakes. And not that saying that people who wind up in prison are angels either, but just that people make bad choices. And, of course, they're in jail, they're in prison to take care of their, do their sentence, um, do their time, whatnot. And people should be expect humane treatment in the correctional system. Thanks. 
Hey, Jay, this is Daniel calling from Ohio. Just calling with a suggestion for a podcast for other people to listen to. Uh, SGU, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. It's just an indoctrination of critical thinking and the battle against complacency. Uh, kind of bright and thought your listeners might enjoy it. Thanks. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Vicki from Hawaii. I just wanted to make a quick comment about the money is fungible thing. Um, if people are going to argue about Planned Parenthood's money being used for abortion, then we should also talk about church money that is put in the donation plate being used for political purposes. It's the same thing. The other thing I wanted to bring your attention to is the... Um, Democracy Now! show on May 31st today, um, where Manuel Zelaya talks about um, how much influence or how much um, say that Obama, President Obama has in foreign policy, and um, I would say probably domestic policy as well. It coincides very much with um, what uh, John Perkins said and the um, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, um, that the president really doesn't have all that much power. And so those who are worried about um, what, who say uh, President Obama is not doing anything, um, well, I, I have to say I'm disappointed in a lot of things too, but on the other hand, I know that he's somewhat limited. So just wanted to point that out. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Today, I just want to pretty simply uh, mention that uh, Netroots Nation is coming up. This is a yearly event. It's a big liberal internet activist conference uh just the quick history of it is you're probably familiar with a website called the daily Co's. Uh, it's a big liberal blog that uh, lots of people go on and pay attention to that sort of thing um about i think it was six years ago now they had the idea to uh you know have a yearly convention for uh, for daily Co's users which they called the yearly Co's. very clever and since then, they've changed the name to Netroots Nation, but that is essentially uh, what this is all about. It's all about uh, you know anyone and everyone involved or interested in being involved with uh, the progressive internet grassroots activist community. Uh, basically, people like me, and by the fact that you're listening to this podcast, people like you. So uh, that is coming up on June 16th through the 19th in Minneapolis. Um, you know, it's it's a little bit late to just now be planning to go, but, you know, maybe, maybe uh, you can go or maybe you're just in the neighborhood and you can uh, stop by or something like that. Uh, anyways, I wanted to say that if you have plans to go, uh, if you're going to be there, drop me a line and because uh, there is an excellent chance that there's going to be a meetup happening and so you know details are not even close to being ironed out um but i just wanted to have you know if there's a a, you know a little list of people 
saying that they're going to be there, then I can just contact you directly when the time comes, when I know kind of what's going on and we can all meet up. It, it's looking like it's, um, you know, besides myself, uh, there will be a few other you know, progressive radio show hosts uh, who you you know know and love through through this show who will be there, and so we're seeing if we can figure out a way to kind of uh, you know organize a meetup, get everyone together, and uh, and have a good time. So as I say, of course, you know everyone should come if you can. Uh, if you're already planning on going, then just drop me a line through the website, and uh, I hope to see you there. Now, I've said in the past, and I will almost certainly say in the future, that I should do a better job of thanking the volunteers who do an enormous amount of work uh, to help keep the show going uh, at its current pace. And, um, you know, they do a lot of kind of what I lovingly refer to as uh, incredibly important grunt work. And uh, so I should do a better job of thanking them. I fail miserably at thanking them as much as I should, but every once in a while I like to correct that trend and uh, and say thanks to the volunteers who are helping out the show at this very moment, uh, Mike, Colette, Todd, Joe, Laura, and Lauren, uh, and brand new volunteers who haven't even started yet, but I want to thank you in advance for the fantastic work you uh, certainly will do soon uh, to Tim and Melanie. So um, huge thanks to all those volunteers. Like uh, it's, it boggles my mind sometimes when I see all the work that they do to help make the show possible and realize that I used to do all of it. And uh, like, I don't know how I had time to sleep before. So, (laughs) so huge, huge thanks to all of you guys uh, for, uh, for sticking in there with me and and doing all that stuff, just know how important it is and how appreciated you guys are uh, all the time. Now, aside from the volunteers who actually are in the trenches doing the real work that makes the show happen, of course, I have to thank a couple of members who, uh, well, I, w- I was going to say do an equally important job, but I, to be honest, is a little bit more important, <laughs> uh, helping out the show financially. Uh, so Daniel D. signed up for his Socialist Monthly membership back on December 5th of last year and has stuck with the show since then. So thank you very much, Daniel. And Maria T. signed up for a leftist membership on November 20th and went ahead and paid for a full year in advance. So huge thanks to Maria and Daniel and all the members and donors who keep the show going. I couldn't do it without you guys. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. You can stay tuned into the show and help spread the word online by joining up with us on Twitter and Facebook themselves. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 11 times a month thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took a part of picture that wasn't right Bitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to be A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out in